Hey everyone, it's Blake. We are getting very close here to the 100th episode of the show. And for the 100th episode, I am going to finally do an episode that you guys have been asking for for quite a while, which is an episode about me and what it's like to have a podcast, how I started my podcast, any sorts of questions like that. So I'm going to have my wife interview me for that episode, but I wanted to get all of the questions from you. So if you have a question that you would like to ask me about myself or about the show or whatever it is, having a podcast, to start a podcast, feel free to email me at blake at halfhourintern.com or you can just click on the email icon at the bottom right of the halfhourintern.com homepage. Thanks so much. On to the show. So children who age out of foster care, one in five will become homeless after they turn 18. Only about 58% of them will graduate from high school. 71% of young women who age out of foster care will be pregnant by the time they turn 21. There's higher unemployment, criminal conviction, um, ending up on public assistance, involvement in the child welfare system with their own children. I mean, it, it is a cycle that we are creating. I want to be my current self from this point forward. I want to learn how to play piano. Working with human beings, drinking wine in the middle of the day. I want to be a Track driver. I'm going to be the next greatest painter. Just kind of work with kids, getting them ahead in life. I want to be a welder. I want to be a beach bum. I want to be a baseball player. Brewmaster. A winemaker. Professional snuggler. Let me mention those sweet, hot lavender baths and writing in the evening. What's up, everybody? This is Blake Fletcher, the Half Hour Intern. In today's episode, I interview parent attorney Diana Rue Johnson. So a parent attorney, for those of you who don't know, is a defense attorney that represents parents accused of abuse and neglect. Now, I'm so happy that Diana reached out to me through my website to possibly come on the show and that I got to have her on the show because uh, as you'll hear in this interview and as I learn from more research on the topic, it's a really, really misunderstood topic and we try to clear a lot of that up in the interview today a lot of people just kind of have the assumption including myself at first um that these are kind of like defenseless people obviously as soon as you hear that a child is suspected of uh, any sort of abuse or neglect you have this very knee-jerk reaction and think um you know that they should be taken away from their parents and these are the people that diana represents every day um, and defends every day as the parents in these cases. So she'll discuss why that is kind of the gap between the reality of the situation and the perception of the reality situation and just make this whole thing a lot more clear for us. So without further ado, here is parent attorney. Diana, thank you so much for coming on the show. Thank you for having me. Yeah, absolutely. I am fascinated to learn more about this because this is something I didn't know was even a thing up until I got your email. And now that I've done more research on it, um, I feel like it's one of those things that everyone kind of needs to know more about. So I'd like to kick things off with a quote from an article that I read that you co-wrote um, that kind of went out to a bunch of different lawyers in your field that do what you do uh, for a meeting that you guys were all going to have. So um, the quote says, representing parents accused of abuse and neglect is lonely work. Attorneys who represent accused parents are often reviled by fellow attorneys and laypersons alike. Unlike criminal defense work, which most people recognize to have serious constitutional implications, the representation of parents accused of abuse and neglect is often viewed by many as defending the indefensible. So I feel like that's a really interesting and on-point quote, because when you first wrote me, uh, that really is such a knee-jerk reaction to like a layperson like me that doesn't know anything about the subject of like, 
who is defending these people and how could these people be innocent and, you know, whatever. So first of all, why don't we start with, could you break down what you think like the average person's view is of what you do and the types of people that you defend and then what it's actually like, like what do you actually do and what, what are the actual people that you're defending? Sure. So the average um, American citizen isn't sitting around in juvenile court all day watching these cases go up in front of the judges. Um, So really the only thing that the average person knows about the child welfare system is when something goes horribly wrong and the case ends up in the news because there's either a horrific injury or a child death or a big criminal trial. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. So I can completely understand how the average person who's not involved in child welfare has just a horrible impression of parents and maybe of the system as well. So what are sometimes then some of the more common cases that you're getting if it's not, let's say, a a parent beating their child or or something more extreme that's more like visceral for people um, listening or watching, you know, like something on TV or something like that? What are kind of the more common things that you see happening that get people like caught up in the system? The more common things that we see happening are pretty benign neglect issues, a lot of which is centered around poverty. So we have sometimes a parent loses a job, um, loses a home, and at that point it becomes very difficult to meet all of the children's needs to get them to school every day on time, get the homework done, make sure they've got their dental and their medical checkups. Um, Honestly, it's it's really that kind of benign neglect is what we see the most. Wow, that's so crazy. The, so it's like the parents are going through this hard time of their own, um, and now this is just kind of another thing that they have to deal with. Like, how is this something that they even have to deal with? Like, I doubt that the kid is turning their parents in. Like, who, who so to speak, is like turning in the parent in that situation? Well, in most states, most adults who work with children are what are called mandatory reporters. And so they're obligated under the law that if there's even a suspicion of abuse or neglect, that they are those professionals are obligated to notify the child welfare agency. So that means teachers and doctors and dentists and daycare workers. Um, really anyone anyone who comes in contact with kids is really supposed to be on watch, which is great. It's great because Child abuse is a real thing, and we want people to to be able to detect it and to keep kids safe who need to who need to be kept safe. Mm-hmm. Unfortunately, it also um, you know we've just got a lot of red flags going up. Yeah, that's really interesting. So if if you're a teacher at a school and a boy in your class used to always come in with his homework done like on time and whatever else. And all of a sudden he never comes in on time. His homework's like not getting done and stuff like that. That's going to raise some flags in your mind. Right. In the teacher's mind. And of course a teacher is going to go through the steps that a teacher goes through, try to contact the parents, talk about, is there anything going on? Is there some extra support needed? But ultimately they're going to be obligated You know, if they don't have a satisfactory explanation or the situation doesn't turn around very quickly, they'll be obligated under the law to contact the child welfare agency. Yeah. Interesting. So uh, let's talk about some of the the moving parts in like the court system that are going to determine the parent's future once they have been uh, 
what's the t- like i keep on wanting to say like turned in but like what what is the term for when somebody like reports on a parent like that well it's it's called a mandated report okay and then sometimes those things are invested those reports are investigated by what are called in most states cps investigators so it's child protective services mm-hmm, mm-hmm. and the cps investigator kind of gets in there talks to the family sees the child and determines is this something that we need to be very concerned about. Maybe we can offer the family some help, you know, there in the home or, you know, it might be something as simple as helping to pay an electricity bill, right? Put, putting some family counseling in place. But sometimes if there's a real safety issue, sometimes the child has to be removed from the home. And how are they? Uh, yeah. Like how are they even trying to determine this exactly? I feel like that's got to be very difficult. Like in the example that you gave, if you, are a parent that just lost your job or you're working two or three jobs or whatever it is, like it's not exactly easy to just take a break and meet with the, uh, the child protective services people that are coming to your house. Well, they're like the cops. They can show up at all hours. It's not just a nine to five job. Okay. Um, so, you know, the, the family really has to sit down with the agency and, you know, let them know that, the child is safe. This is what's going on. Maybe we could use some help. Uh, but it's absolutely essential that the that the CPS investigator touches base with the family and lays eyes on the child, because a lot of those horrific stories that we see on the news are things that happen when this when the child welfare agency doesn't do its job. Okay, interesting. So let's say that the um, the child protective services person does decide that this should now go to court, um, which is like where you would come in. And I'm sure lots of other people, what happened? Like who actually, let's not talk about what happens yet. Let's just talk about like the names of the different roles. Like who are the different people that are now going to be involved in this family's life? Like kind of making the decisions for what's going to happen for them going forward. Okay. So going back to the example I use, say, it's a lot of absences and no homework and showing up with dirty clothes. And and it turns out not to be just a benign neglect issue. Maybe it's because mom's an alcoholic and she's passed out and she's not properly parenting her kids and getting them to school. Mm-hmm. So if there's a real safety issue, um, the CPS investigator has to um, go to the court and ask for it basically for permission to remove the child from the home. And that triggers a due process right. So we're back to those constitutional rights, just like in criminal law. So if a child is removed from the home, the parent has a right to a hearing within 72 hours. So the parent has the right to appear before a judge. And we have what's called a probable cause hearing, where the judge has to determine if there's probable cause to believe that this child is a dependent child. That's the term that we use. And, And the judge has to determine whether it's necessary to keep this child out of the home. Okay. So it, it, what, like what percentage of the time would that, would that happen? It, like during these cases, is the child usually removed from the home as the case is proceeding or is the child left in the home while the case is proceeding? Well, if the child is left in the home while the case is proceeding, then the case won't, the case generally doesn't go right to court and that 72 hours is not triggered. So the 72-hour hearing is triggered when the child is removed from the home. Oh, wow. So the basically the CPS person can kind of trigger the child being removed from the home. Yes. It's called a, an emergency removal order. 
Okay. Interesting. Um, so now who else is going to come into play and, and then we'll get into the process. Obviously you're going to come into play. Who are, who are the other people? Sure. So once, once this becomes a court case, we have the attorney who represents the child welfare agency, usually called the agency attorney, a parent who's had a child removed has a constitutional right to representation, just like a criminal defendant. And if the parent cannot afford to hire an attorney and they meet certain um, financial standards, then an attorney can be appointed by the court. Mm -hmm. And so that's the parent attorney. And then children also have the right to an attorney. So children are automatically appointed an attorney. So I guess in terms that that people would understand from usual, uh, like court lingo, you act is more or less a defense attorney. The agency attorney is acting more or less as a prosecution attorney. And then the child's attorney is more like the way that people get attorneys for like their business or something in the sense that you're just getting an attorney to counsel you. Like that's kind of what the child is getting an attorney for is just for counsel. Well, the child, the child attorney, the child's attorney is, is an attorney just, just like I'm an attorney and basically represents to the court what it is that the child wants. Because again, we always think about parents and parents have done something wrong. But when you're talking about an actual liberty interest, it's the child who's, who's freedom has been impinged on. It's the child who was picked up and removed from her parents' home, removed from oftentimes her school, her church, her extracurricular activities, her other relatives. So that child is entitled to an attorney just like the parent is entitled to an attorney. Wow, that's man, I this is such a an interesting process. So I I want to jump more into the process so we can talk about things more, but you mentioning the child just I need to get this out of the way first. So how is it determined by everyone um to what extent you can trust the child's wishes? I I guess it's very like so I'm just thinking like let's say I was 12 years old and I had a crush on a girl in my class. And I was like, really just head over heels in love with her. And I got removed from my parent who was like beating me or something. And like, I, I should have been removed from my parent. But it also kind of like removed me from class. And now I'm away from this girl that I have a crush on. And I'm away from my best buds and all these things. When it comes to court, I might just be like, oh, no, like, please just put me back in my home, kind of thinking like, okay, I can keep on putting up with my parents. I just really want to have the rest of my life go back to normal. So, like, there's one side of it. The other side is obviously like the classic Stockholm syndrome, which is you start to like fall in love with your captor, right? It's like you're being uh, like abused by your parent, but you defend them and you still think that they're just great, even though they're completely abusing you. And then the other one is that maybe your parents aren't that bad, but maybe just like there's that child parent conflict and you're just like, screw you, mom. Like, I never want to see you again. And you're just all heated and in the moment, I guess how like I feel like it's so difficult for that child attorney and everyone in this whole process to uh, like trust what the child is saying and know that it's on point and uh yeah, I guess I'm almost surprised that the child is even brought into the process. Well, why would a child not be brought into the process? This entire 
legal system is centered around the child. Yeah, yeah, no, you're. I, yeah, it's one of those things where it's like I'm surprised they are, and then obviously if they weren't, I'd be even more surprised, you know. But it's uh, like I guess but, how 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 are we how are we trying to determine what's right for the child when maybe they don't know? I mean, that's the whole idea of a parent, right? Is that your child doesn't know what's good for them, so you kind of need to decide what's good for them as a parent or coach them or whatever it is. Um, like, how is that working in the court system for these kids? Okay. So let me step outside my parent attorney role because I do represent children sometimes in these cases as well. And I can tell you that, so you've got it in your head that you're, that as an attorney, I'm talking to this child and the child says, I want to go live at Disneyland. And I say, okay, let's <laughs> judge. And that's, that's absolutely not what it's like. Just as I do with my parent clients, we talk, I interview them, I find out what it is they want, how they feel about certain issues, where they feel safe. And ultimately what I come away with is what my client wants to happen. And then as the attorney, I have to counsel my client about how can I make, how can I help to make that happen? So I'll give an example. I represented a 13 year old girl who lived with she and her siblings lived with their father and he was a single father and he was kind of from the old school, a little heavy handed with the discipline. Um, things got a little out of hand one night with one of the older children and he actually, rather than discipline, I mean, it crossed the line into physical abuse and the children were removed. And as I was counseling my 13 year old client and I said, what is, what is it that you want to happen? She said, I want to go back home. And that's not what I run into court and tell everyone. We then had probably an hour long conversation about, well, do you want to go home to the situation as you left it two days ago when your dad was angry and hitting people, hitting your sister and kicking the dog? Well, no. So do you want to go home once your dad kind of gets a handle on things and learns not to get so angry? Well, yeah, that is what I want. Okay, well, then let's talk about how we're going to make that happen. Okay, that makes so much sense. I don't know why I would have thought what I thought before, which is like, you just go and pick this kid up and like bring him straight into the court case without talking with them very much. Like there, there is like a, a counsel portion of this. Yeah, client counseling is a huge part of this. Okay, cool. That all makes total sense. Um all right, so let's jump uh, jump back into the process more now that we know about like kind of all these different players and everything. So if you could just first give us a brief outline of the process from start to finish, and then we'll delve into uh, you know a little bit more lengthy uh, description of some of these other parts of the process. Sure. So there's a definite timeline that these cases follow. So I already talked about the parent's right to have a hearing within 72 hours. Um, and sometimes the child is returned at that 72-hour hearing. But if it's determined that there's probable cause to believe that the child is dependent and the child needs to remain in foster care, then the next thing that happens is the agency has to file a petition for dependency. So the agency has to lay out on paper, these are the reasons that this child is dependent, which basically means without proper parental care and control, and these are the reasons that the child needs to remain in foster care. And the agency has to come into court and prove those allegations by clear and convincing evidence. So now, my job Sorry, I, if I can just interject here really quickly. Uh, so I, something I've always wondered about court cases is um, 
like if somebody on the it's like it's more or less the agency's job to be the prosecution it sounds like so if let's say they're doing their own research and they kind of come up with the idea that you know that that actually this parent's not that bad it was just it, it appeared that way at first or whatever it is do can they then like drop the case or whatever or do they just keep on prosecuting anyways no they just like just like criminal prosecutors the agency attorneys have the obligation to evaluate the validity of their case you know as they get more into it do their investigation, figure out what they're going to present at trial. And I've had quite a few cases where the agency comes back and says, you know what? We think that this is something that can be handled with the kids in the home. Let's let's send the kids home. Let's send them to family counseling. Let's, you know, get mom into vocational training or whatever it is the family needs. As long as there isn't a safety issue, then the agency will um, you know, is pretty much obligated to go ahead and send the child home and support the family in the home, which we all know is healthier for children and for families. Right, right. Okay, so I, I apologize for for the interruption in your timeline there. So <laughs> if you want to jump back into the timeline. Okay, so um, I got to the point, so the agency files a petition and then we have what's called the adjudicatory hearing. And that's when that's when the agency has to prove their allegations by clear and convincing evidence. So I'm there as the defense attorney defending my client against these allegations and showing showing the court that, in fact, the agency has not met their burden of proof. There is not clear and convincing evidence to show that the, that this child is dependent and that it's not contrary to the welfare for this child to go home. OK, and then. Uh, then that's basically it. Then a judge is going to decide what happens and that's, that's the end of it. So, well, that's if, if I win, that's the end of it. (laughs) And so I've, I've had a lot of cases where we go through a full trial and the judge says, nope, the agency did not meet their burden. This child, you know, there isn't clear and convincing evidence to show that this child is dependent. I'm dismissing the petition and this child's going home. Case closed. And if they don't say that, then then what's the opposite of that? So if they don't say that, there's there is a middle ground where sometimes the judge says there is clear and convincing evidence that, that this child is dependent, but it's not contrary to the welfare for the child to return home. And so what we do at that point is called returning under a protective order. So the child is returned home, but the judge issues an order that says, I'm giving your child back, but I'm ordering you to comply with counseling or, you know, whatever it is that's going to remedy the situation. Okay, so in your example earlier of, let's say, the reason why the child was missing class was because the mom was an alcoholic. In that case, it's going to be you need to be going to these AA meetings and doing all these things, um, but you can have your child back. Right. A good example of a case that is returned under a protective order is if the reason for removal was a domestic violence incident and through good client counseling, I have sometimes been able to convince the client, my client, if it's the mother, that this is not a situation that is safe for the children. And you've got this guy in your life who's violent and now your children have been taken from you. So we need to go up to the superior court. We need to get a temporary protective order. And this guy needs to be 
this guy needs to be court ordered to have absolutely no contact with you or your children. And so in a case like that, um, we've solved the problem before before the adjudicatory hearing, and I've been able to have a case dismissed. Um, Say I lose the adjudicatory hearing, the child is dependent and has to stay in foster care. The next thing that happens is called the disposition. So if you think of the adjudicatory hearing as the trial, the disposition is sentencing. So at the disposition, that's when the court tells the parent, okay, here's your case plan. This is the list of things that you need to do in order to regain custody of your child. Okay, so in that in in that sort of case, um, they're they're always going to have like a list of things that the parents need to be doing. In ninety nine percent of the cases, the parent gets a case plan and has the opportunity to regain custody. There's that one percent where the state is actually not obligated to make what are called reasonable efforts to reunify the family, and those are very egregious cases where the parent has murdered the other parent of the child, murdered a sibling of the child, horrible cases. Okay. And and there and in those cases there is no case plan. Okay. Okay. The the child is just immediately Or there's an option not to give a case plan. Okay. So uh once the parent has executed the case plan or not executed the case plan, so they're given this case plan, um at this like sentencing type of hearing, like you said, uh, let's say their case plan lasts for 30 days. Um, I guess two questions. One, who is there someone like following up with them throughout this 30 days to make sure that these things are actually happening? And two, what now happens at the end of the 30 days? What are our possible outcomes then? Okay. So right after the, um, after the probable cause hearing and the adjudication, that CPS investigator drops out of the case and, the case is now going to be handled by a foster care case manager. And so that case manager handles the family when they are in the system, make sure the child is in a, you know, in a foster home, meets with the parents, make sure that they're on track, makes the referrals for their services and, you know, all that sort of stuff. Um, so that the case managers, the foster care case manager is actually a very important person. And you talked about, 30 days. It's not actually 30 days. Nothing, nothing in the court system is going to happen in 30 days. (laughs) (laughs) Honestly, it's more under federal law. It's more like a year before, um, before we start looking at doing different things. So, you know, because these are, you know, when you're talking about getting a psychological evaluation or mental health treatment or counseling or or drug rehabilitation, those are things that take months rather than days. Wow. And so during this entire time, though, typically the child is removed from home and is going to be living in foster care? Yes. Wow. Or with a relative, because the the agency is also obligated to look for relatives. Okay. Because staying with a relative during this time is a whole lot less traumatic for the child than staying with a stranger. Okay. Yeah. So... And I and sorry, let let let's finish this off before I move on to some of my other questions. So then what what is are the possible outcomes at the end of uh, of this process now? Okay. Um the best possible outcome is that whatever it was that made it unsafe for this child to live in my client's home has been solved. Whether that's through 
mental health treatment or education about how to properly discipline a child or medication or counseling, whatever it is has been solved. And it's now it's now time for me to argue that it's safe for this child to go home. And sometimes everyone is in agreement that all the boxes have been checked and let's get this child home. That's called reunification. And parent attorneys, because the reality is that the clients who we're appointed to represent usually have problems and they're And a lot of times there is a real safety issue in the home. So we don't get to win at adjudication very often. So what one thing that we like to say is that even though that we don't we don't win at adjudication very often, we win at reunification. That is our victory is getting children home to their parents, which is kind of should be that. I mean, I guess the main goal, like if the parent needs to be reformed, then they'll go then, then you, you know, you'll be losing the uh, first process. But then hopefully the parent does reform and then you win the second process. That's great. Yes. Now, let's talk about if the parent does not reform and everyone is not on board with that parent, what happens then? Okay, that's when we start to look at the termination of parental rights. And in child welfare, we refer to the the termination of parental rights as the civil death penalty, because it really is the most serious thing that can happen. And it's something that we all we all want to avoid because. The reason that parent attorneys do this work is that we believe that families are worth fighting for and to return and that every child who can live safely with his or her parent has the right to do so. Unfortunately, there are cases where it never becomes safe for a child to return home, Um, whether that's a parent who has a chronic addiction that they are just not able to rehabilitate from, or it's a parent who receives a very long prison sentence. And there are times when having the child remain in foster care for that very long time is not the right thing to do. Because one thing about foster care is that it's a temporary fix. It's somewhere, it's a, <clears throat> it's a resource that we use when children cannot be safely with their parent for temporarily. But when when that temporary situation starts to look more permanent, we have to look at other options for the child. And what? Are, so let's talk about the onus of getting these kids back with their parents and why this seems to be what everyone wants versus, again, I think that probably a lot of people at the beginning of this interview or just reading about what you do just think like, well, yeah, these kids should be taken away from their parents. Their parents are terrible people. Like, why do we want to get these kids back with their parents so much? I guess explain the whole entire foster care system in the United States and like what happens to a kid in foster care? What where else a kid might be living? Like what happens exactly? Sure. And I completely understand that emotional kind of knee jerk reaction of we need to take these kids away from this parent. Um, But the reality is that when you take children away from their parents, they're put in foster care. And that is a disruption for the child because a child isn't just taken out of his home. He is often taken out of his school, out of his church, out of his extracurricular activities, away from the other away from other relatives. If a sibling group is taken, a lot of times those siblings cannot be placed together because 
there isn't a foster home to take all three or all four of them. And so then they're separated from their siblings. Hmm. So think about what an incredible disruption that is to the life of a child. Yeah, of course. Now, what is, what does a foster care situation look like? I think most most of us like don't even know that. Are you is it kind of like getting adopted? Are you just like living with a new mom and dad? Um, are you living in a room that has like 20 beds inside of it? Like what what is foster care like? Well, younger children are typically easier to place with families. So for a very young child, foster care is going to look like um simply moving into a different home with a with a foster parent with sometimes with other children there the older a child gets the more difficult that child is to place and a lot of older children end up living in group homes which really is that um a lot of kids in a in a home in a room Um, You know, you think of more of like a dorm situation where there's staff there, but not really a parental figure. Wow, that's hard. I mean, I guess that really makes sense to why people want the kids to go back with the parents, because at least it's a parent versus just truly no parents whatsoever. Right. And there have been studies done. There is a researcher at MIT named Joseph Doyle who has done a lot of research about foster care outcomes. And one of the, one of the studies that he did, um, the, out, the results, I'm sorry, the conclusion that he came to was that in those kind of close call situations where the agency is you know, thinking, should we remove this kid, shouldn't we? It's a close call that the kids who are left in the home fare better in the long run than children who are removed to foster care. Mm, that's really interesting. And he, you know, he used measures like delinquency, teen pregnancy, em- employment, involvement with the criminal justice system, that by all of those measures, children who remained with their own families did better than children who went to foster care. Yeah, because I guess if you're if you're even if your own family is not that great, it is a family. And and even if your parent is not that great, it is a parent. And in the complete absence of all those things, it definitely makes more sense that you would get in you would get in more trouble and that it would be more difficult for you at school and growing up. All right. We we have the case manager who is kind of trying to make sure that everything comes out the best for this child um, during this whole uh, what what is the process again um, where the the parent is trying to reform typically and all that what what is that time period called we it's the post disposition time period we refer to it as working the case plan okay so they're working the case plan the case manager is trying to make sure that they're working the case plan because the case manager really wants what's best for this kid and this family. So mm-hmm. it almost it, to me it almost sounds like that you're then not needed because this case manager is here to just to make sure everything that is like the best for the kid is going to happen anyways. Explain why it is that you are there and like if you weren't doing your job, what is going to happen more than likely to this child and the parent? Well, okay, take into account that everyone involved in this in this system is human. So we've got a case manager who's very busy, who's dealing with this child and however many other children are on her caseload. 
and she's dealing with my client who's probably still a little angry, maybe not the most pleasant person to interact with, um, maybe putting up some resistance about what it is that she has to do. So it's very easy for that case manager, client, that case manager and parent communication to break down. And so a lot of the work I do is in that post-disposition period because I have to make sure that even though the case manager isn't happy with my client, that she's still doing her job, arranging the visits as often as they're supposed to happen, making the referrals for the services that are supposed to happen, returning my client's phone calls. At the same time, I am also a cheerleader for my client because as a parent attorney, I am getting this client at probably the lowest point in her life. And I have to help her pick up the pieces and do what needs to be done. Because by federal law, the clock is ticking. You you don't get four or five, six years to work a case plan because children need permanency. We can't keep them in foster care forever, which means that I have to sit down with my client and say, I don't, we don't have two or three months for you just to sit here and be mad. We've got to go. We have got to hit the ground running and work this case plan because, because you need to get your child back home. Yeah. So basically it sounds like more often the, 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 the children would probably be taken away from the parents if it weren't for you being there just because everyone's so focused on the child no one's really focused on advocating for the parent and more importantly like really pushing the parent and helping them um you know with with these steps that they need to take yeah it's a very um it is very child focused as it should be and it's so easy for parents to get discouraged and to get bogged down and basically just kind of get lost in the system yeah. And that's a, a big part of what parent attorneys do is to make sure that that doesn't happen. So at the end of the whole entire rehab process, um, and I guess e- even before um, when, when just the first primary case is happening, when people are trying to determine, like, is this parent a real problem? Is this parent a perceived problem? And then later on, when we're determining, like, is this parent actually rehabilitated or are they just saying, like, oh, I'm not an alcoholic anymore, I promise like who's making these calls and determining the validity of a situation and how serious a situation is. So you're talking about on the front end? Uh, I guess uh, on both. I, if it's a different person, then yeah. Um, then let, let's talk about the front end first. Like who's determining if, if the parent is a real problem or just kind of a perceived problem? Okay. So I'll give you an example of a case, a very serious case that I had where my, my client was the mother of a three-day-old baby who was found at day five. I'm sorry, the child was five days old and was found to have a femur fracture and was immediately removed from the parent's care. And so the agency, the CPS investigator and the agency attorney had a child abuse expert at the hospital saying, this is abuse. Babies don't just break their femurs. And I had to go to trial and prove that no, these parents are not abusive. And in fact, I was, I was very lucky in the evidence I was able to collect that um, I was able to show that this child was in fact born with a broken femur, which is very rare. Mm. But we were able to prove it. 
So basically, everyone's trying to do the detective work to determine if if a problem is real or just perceived. Absolutely. Okay. Um, so- and sometimes the argument is not whether is not whether that there's whether or not there's a problem, but does that problem pose a safety risk for the child? For example, the parent uses marijuana that may or may not pose a safety risk for a child. Mm, that's a good point. And again, I think a lot of people, um, depending on their views, obviously, uh, you know, I'm, state they live in. Yeah, I'm from San Francisco. So people have very uh, liberal views with regard to marijuana. But I know that that's not the way it is in the entire United States. So I'm sure that there could be people listening to this that are like, oh, yeah, that kid totally should be taking taken away from their parents if their parent is a drug user, you know, but if the parent is a drug user and they handle themselves completely fine. Um, and by the way, if the other option is for that kid to be bounced around from foster home to foster home, like you were saying, how is that any better than just being with the parent that smokes marijuana? Like, it's just not, it's just not any better. Now you're understanding where these arguments are coming from. (laughs) Yeah, totally. Um, so, all right, well, let's talk about like, what is too much and when should a child not be reunified with their parent? Well, according to to federal law, we have to operate on a timeline because these cases cannot go on forever. We cannot keep children in foster care forever. So one of the federal guidelines is that if a child has been in foster care during 15 out of the last 22 months, the agency has to file a petition to terminate parental rights unless there is some compelling reason that they should not. Like and maybe the be, parent is going to be getting out of prison soon or something like that. Parent could be getting out of prison soon. The parent is a month or two away from graduating from rehab. Um, you know, it has to be a compelling reason. Okay. So um, the agency files a petition to terminate parental rights. And just like the petition for dependency, the agency has to lay out the reasons why this parent's r- parental rights to this child should be terminated. And that means, you know, back to, I told you that we call it the civil death penalty because it is a severing of that legal bond between the legal tie between a parent and child as if it never existed. If, if there has been any sort of sexual misconduct with a child, is that an immediate sort of termination as well? Or are they also brought through the entire process and maybe like their sexual habits are, are tried to, to be rehabilitated? Um, sexual abuse is a really difficult issue. I'll say that because a lot of times there is a there's a criminal component. Um, so the parent is facing the child welfare system, but then they're also facing the criminal system. Hmm. And so sometimes it's not the sexual abuse so much that determines that parental rights should be terminated. Sometimes it's the length of the prison sentence. Yeah, that makes total sense. So it almost kind of takes care of itself. Like the more the more heinous that the crime is, that person is now actually going to go to prison for that crime. So obviously their parental rights are terminated. In, in a lot of cases, yes. Okay. But uh, termination of parental rights, a lot of what we see are unrehabilitated drug addicts or alcoholics hmm. where, you know, there comes a point where we just cannot keep a child in foster care for years and years and years, hoping that the parent um, will be rehabilitated. Yeah. So let's talk about that for a second. So if you 
um let, let's say a parent like hits their child or something and they go to whatever it is that they need, like anger management or just like parental guidance classes, just saying, hey, this isn't kind of how we do things anymore. Like you, that's not how you reprimand your child. Um, and the parent like supposedly reforms. So after like a year, everything we're like, OK, th- things are looking good. This kid is going to go back with their parent. And then <laughs> six months later, the kid is showing up to school with bruises and they get turned in again. Like, what happens now when someone's a repeat offender? The fact that a child has been in foster care previously affects whether or not the agency is going to want to make what are called reasonable efforts to, toward reunification. And if a child has been in foster care, I believe it's the third time under most states' laws, then the agency is not obligated to make reasonable efforts toward reunification. Okay, so like if the parent slips up a second time, then they'll still try to reunify. But if the parent slips up a third time, then it's that's probably it. Well, we're not talking about slip ups. We're talking about. Right. Yeah, it's, <laughs> of course. Yeah. Um, um, but yeah, it also and it also affects the time to the time for filing the, the termination of parental rights petition, because remember, I talked about 15 out of the last 22 months. Mm hmm. So if a child re-enters foster care rather quickly, those months are still counting toward that 15 out of 22. Um, Diana, with all the cases that you've seen now, what percentage of the time do you feel like a child should realistically be taken away from their parents? That There should be a termination of rights. Say out of my last hundred cases, I would say that there were probably 10 where stepping outside of my role I would say termination was probably the right thing. Okay. So to your to the point at the beginning of this interview as of people kind of having the wrong idea about the people that you're defending and the wrong idea about what you do and stuff like that, only about 10% of the time is it like serious enough that you as a person and a parent and everything would would have the opinion that, okay, yeah, maybe the, this parent and this child should be separated. But the other 90% of the time, you feel like the, the child should be going back with the parent. Once it's safe to do so. Yeah. I mean, I, I fight for families. That's what I do. Yeah. Um, but I will say, um, I know we've talked about going to court and having these trials, but there are times when a termination of parental rights petition is filed. And as part of Part of my job as a parent attorney, again, is to counsel my client. And I have had I've had to have those conversations with with my client about what is the right thing to do for your child. And you would be surprised about the number of parents who, when they're sitting down and talking to a compassionate person, will admit, I can't do this. Mm. And my child is with a foster parent who loves her and is willing to adopt her. And I'm going to let her have that better life. And so I, one of the things, you know, it's not always a termination of parental rights trial. Sometimes it's talking, it's counseling my client about whether or not surrendering her parental rights is the correct thing to do. And that happens more than you think. Yeah. That's really interesting. How much of the time do you feel like we're getting it right? That these cases are going the way that they should be going? That's a difficult, I I probably couldn't even give you a percentage on that. One thing I can say is that the child welfare system is getting better. 
every year, it's getting better. Um, and the reason for that is partly because parent representation and child representation is getting better so that we have people, we have more people in the courtroom advocating for the rights of children, the rights of parents and the rights of families. Yeah, that um, makes a lot of sense. I mean, it, like, I think a, a good uh, uh, like mirror to that would be, let's say, how people now want to have drug reform for like three strikes laws of marijuana and stuff like that, that back in the eighties or whatever, it was like, yeah, if you're smoking weed, you should just be in prison for 20 years. And like, now we're like, wait a second, like, is that really the best thing? And should these people really be in prison for a large portion of their lives just for smoking marijuana? And is that good for the prison system? Is that good for our tax dollars? Like there's so many reasons why we're now reevaluating that. And to your point about that study earlier of, uh, of what's really better for a kid being taken away from their parents or um, them going to a foster home. It sounds like maybe a little bit more. Um, there's a little bit more of an onus to get these kids back with their parents now than maybe there used to be. Yeah, absolutely. And your your analogy to the criminal system and and drug offenses is absolutely correct because there was a while in the bad old days um, where. We were terminating parental rights simply on that timeline. You hit 15 out of 22, we're filing a petition and we're probably going to win because the parent attorney bar isn't very strong. Parents weren't getting really great, really great defense. And so the state systems were terminating parental rights all over the place. And without any, any real thought about that child's future. So when you terminate a parent's rights, you are now leaving that child as what is called a legal orphan. They have no legal tie to any adult. And children who are legal orphans and don't end up getting adopted because we do not have an unlimited supply of adoptive homes, especially for older children, those children were then aging out of foster care. So think about what you were like at the age of 18. Were you ready? to pack up your bags and move out of your parents' house and make a living and sustain yourself and be on your own? See, it's interesting that you say that because I feel like I was, but the thing that's important for me to think about is the fact that obviously I had great parenting my entire life and I had a really stable situation my entire life. If I like putting myself in the shoes of somebody else, I can't even imagine, like, I really can't imagine being told like, all right, now just like be ready for the world and making an income while you've had a very unstable childhood. Um, it sounds near impossible. Right. So children who age out of foster care, one in five will become homeless after they turn 18. Only about 58% of them will graduate from high school. 71% of young women who, who age out of fo foster care will be pregnant. By the time they turn 21, there's higher unemployment, criminal conviction, um, ending up on public assistance, involvement in the child welfare system with their own children. I mean, it, it is a cycle that we that we are creating if we're not working hard enough to get children back home to their parents whenever it's safely possible. Yeah. And we're not working hard enough to rehab these parents and, um, yeah, just make for happier family lives. Uh Diana, if you could, uh, if, we, if we could try to like, normally I leave people off with some advice, but I don't really know what the advice piece would be here. So if we could, uh, this is a little bit like heavy and um, 
Yeah, just like heavy of a topic. So do you have any like stories that we could leave anyone off with of like a really awesome result from a case or like a, a beautiful, wonderful thing that's happened since you've been a parent defense attorney? Um, yes, I had a case. It was actually when I first started representing parents. I represented a father who was what we call the non-accused parent. So the, the parents were divorced and the father, because the mother was mentally ill and a little mean, um, had had become estranged from his son. And his son ended up in the child welfare system because the mother had allowed um, her boyfriend to sexually molest this child. And I represented the, the child's um, biological father. And it took about a year to convince the court and everyone involved that, in fact, my client was a good guy. He had not abandoned his son. None of the things that the mother said about my client were true and that it was actually in his son's best interest to be placed in his custody. And this was a kid. This child was 12 years old, I think, at the time that the case started. He was in a group home. He was depressed, anxious. Um, he'd been diagnosed with ADD. He was on several medications. He was acting out. He was probably one step away from getting into the delinquency system. But my client worked extremely hard um, to to show that he that he was a fit parent and to kind of rearrange his life so that he was able to be a single parent to his son. And this guy called me not too long ago. And it was one of those like, hey, remember me? And of course I did because he was one of my first clients. And he let me know that his son was graduating from high school, doing really well, was not on any medications. Um, he had been in ROTC and that he was enlisting in the U.S. Navy. Man, that's so great. That is so great. And that I th so I think about stories like that when 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 it's lonely work and it's really hard and it feels like everyone is fighting against my clients and because stories like that remind me that this is why I do what I do. Yeah. You literally changed that kid's life. I mean, you obviously also changed his dad's life, but you completely changed that kid's life. Yes. Man, Diana, that is awesome. Well, thank you for the story. Thank you for doing what you do. Um, Cause as you said, I could only imagine it's gotta be very lonely and difficult work to do, but uh it's so needed and um yeah just thank you it's it's super awesome thank you for coming on the show and sharing this with all of us it's it's been a real pleasure thanks for listening hey everyone it's blake hope you all enjoyed the episode if you're sitting there thinking to yourself i wonder how i could help blake out first of all you are probably the nicest person in the entire world secondly all you have to do is just tell a friend about the show i would really appreciate it if you're sitting there and thinking man, my job is really interesting, or man, I do this totally badass hobby, I should totally be on this show, then you totally should be on the show. Just reach out to me on halfhourintern.com, my website. You can email me through there. And uh, if there is another job or hobby that you don't do, but you just want to hear about it, you can submit any sort of idea through the Submit Your Ideas link on the page. Thanks again for listening. Take care.